welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jürgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jürgensen. And we're very happy to welcome you here today to hear Jessica Hurley, who's Assistant Professor of English at George Mason University, who will be discussing her book, Infrastructures of Apocalypse, Environmental Literature and the Nuclear Complex, which came out with University of Minnesota Press in 2020. So Jessica, we'll give it over to you. All right, um, thank you so much. Yeah, I'd like to start by thanking Dolly and Finana for having me as part of the Greenhouse Book Talk series. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here and have this opportunity to share my work with you. Um, and I'm also honored to be included in a series with so many books that I really love. I'm so excited to be here today. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm calling in today from Shakori, Eno and Tuscarora land and voice my support for decolonization and land back initiatives. I'm going to take about 15 minutes to give a quick introduction to the book and its main arguments, and then I'll be excited to hear your thoughts and discuss your questions and ideas. So the big intervention that I wanted to make with this book was to do away once and for all with the idea that nuclear apocalypse hasn't happened yet. This idea has been absolutely central to nuclear criticism to date for a couple of reasons. Um, first, the field itself was born in a conference at Cornell in 1983 and then in a special issue of Diacritics the following year that featured two conceptual framings that would go on to define the conversation for the next 30 years. In his extremely derridly named article, No Apocalypse, Not Now, Full Speed Ahead, Seven Missiles, Seven Missives, Jacques Derrida defined nuclear apocalypse as fabulously textual, arguing that because nuclear war had not yet happened, we could only approach it through its representations in text. And you can see why this approach would be catnip to literary scholars in particular, as it opened up a way, and I do think an important way, for those of us trained in textual analysis to approach the nuclear age as a major cultural and literary, as well as a technological event. In her essay, The Nuclear Sublime, meanwhile, Frances Ferguson drew on the aesthetic theory of the sublime to argue that um, the epistemological challenge posed by the threat of atomic annihilation made it something that was fundamentally unthinkable. So she writes, the notion of the sublime is continuous with the notion of nuclear holocaust. To think the sublime would be to think the unthinkable and to exist in one's own non-existence. And the idea of the nuclear bomb as the limit point of thinkability very quickly became received wisdom in nuclear criticism, perpetuating the idea that nuclear apocalypse was unthinkable, unimaginable, and unknowable, all of which precluded thinking about nuclear apocalypse as something that was already happening and that was not only thinkable and imaginable, but a lived experience for some people. When we think about nuclear apocalypse through our received images of mushroom clouds over New York and the future World War III, however, we lose sight not only of the 1,149 atom bombs that the US has already detonated on its own lands and on indigenous homelands, but also of what I call in my book, the infrastructures of apocalypse that have remade the planet in the present, producing apocalypse not in the unthinkable future, but now distributing the slow violence of the atomic age inequitably along lines of race, indigeneity, gender, class, sexuality, and disability. If we look away from the mushroom cloud and towards nuclear infrastructures, we find that poor people, people of color, indigenous people, queer people, and women receive the least benefit from the nuclear complex and are most exposed to its harm. The most toxic nuclear technology sites are located on indigenous land and in proximity to poor communities and communities of color. Predominantly black cities are established as nuclear bait to protect the white suburbs, with the result that by 1984, an estimated 88% of the African-American population would have been wiped out in the first five minutes of a full-scale atomic war. And safety standards regulating exposure to radiation are established based on the male body when women exposed to the same sources are 37.5% more likely to develop cancer. As the activist Jan in Tony Cade Bambara's 1980 novel, The Salt Eaters, argues to a friend who semi-jokingly wants to keep the struggle focused on good old fashioned racism, they're connected. Whose community do you think they ship radioactive waste through or dig up waste burial grounds near? 
who do you think they hire for the dangerous, dirty work at those plants? What parts of the world do they test blast in? And all them illegal uranium mines dug up on Navajo turf, the crops dying, sheep dying, the horses, water, cancer. Hell, it's an emergency situation, has been for years. All those thrown together plants they built in the 40s and 50s are falling apart now. War is not the threat. It's all the peacetime construction that's wiping us out. The mushroom cloud is a remarkably effective alibi for the nuclear complex, suggesting that anything other than World War III doesn't count as nuclear or as apocalyptic. In her analysis of the nuclear complex from below, Bambara reminds us that nuclear apocalypse is an everyday event for some people in some places. That the question that we ask of nuclear apocalypse should not be when, but rather where and for whom. It's for this reason that I've conceptualized this book so firmly as an environmental humanities project. It's kind of endlessly surprising to me how little crossover there has been between nuclear criticism and eco-criticism. Although, of course, if you see the bomb as fabulously textual, then it is going to make it harder to see it as also fabulously material. In order to wrench nuclearization out of the realm of the nuclear sublime and reposition it as a thoroughly environmental issue, I propose in the book an alternative heuristic through which to approach the nuclear age, that of the nuclear mundane. The nuclear mundane approaches the nuclear age with an eye for its material realities, focusing on the environmental, infrastructural, bodily and social impacts of nuclear technologies and the, and the politics that prioritize them. It is attentive to moments when nuclear infrastructures intersect with structures of power, making visible things like the co-constitution of nuclear technologies and compulsory heterosexuality in the mid-century lesbian novels, The Price of Salt and Ruby Fruit Jungle, where the men who figure the marriage plot that the protagonists are trying to escape are both students of nuclear engineering. By only ascribing nuclearity to the bomb, nuclear criticism risks being blinded to the negotiations of power, wealth, status, and vulnerability that are constantly in play around nuclear and contestably nuclear things, from bodies and rocks to highways and international treaties. When the sublime teaches us to submit and the bomb blinds us to all that we are submitting to, we find ourselves unable to gain critical purchase on the multi-scalar infrastructures of the nuclear age. By redefining the nuclear object as continuous with a set of militarized infrastructures, rather than as their exceptional endpoint, an approach grounded in the environmental humanities and the nuclear mundane makes the nuclear visible both in its extent and reach into every aspect of everyday life and in its contestability as something that can be named and challenged. This eco-critical approach to the nuclear age then raises a broader question. What does it mean to live in a world that is infrastructured to produce apocalypse? This question has resonances far beyond nuclearization. Climate change, mass extinction, and the COVID-19 pandemic are all apocalyptic consequences of what Winona LeDuc and Deborah Cowan have named Windigo infrastructure, ecocidal settler colonial infrastructures that disposition the world towards its own destruction. And yet, as a literature scholar, I'm interested too in how apocalypse narratives have shaped the emergence of nuclear infrastructures at the same time as nuclear infrastructures have produced new lived apocalypse narratives. In each chapter, I show how pre-existing narratives of apocalypse shape the environments and infrastructures of nuclearization in ways that disproportionately impact minority populations. The book's title, Infrastructures of Apocalypse, captures the double movement that I see at work here. Not only is the modern world infrastructured to produce apocalypse, it is also infrastructured by apocalypse as a speculative imaginary of the future that determines what seems possible or desirable in the present. These new nuclear apocalypse narratives are shaped by older stories about futurelessness that is unevenly distributed along the lines of race, indigeneity, class, gender, sexuality, and disability. According to Western chronopolitics from 1492 onwards and intensified in enlightenment thought, whiteness is marked by its access to futurity while it defines other social forms through their futurelessness race as backwards, queerness as sterile, indigeneity as vanishing, disability as an unimaginable part of any desirable future, and so on. 
What we see in the narrative material construction of nuclear infrastructures is how beliefs in the inherent futurelessness of social groups come to shape the inequitable exposure to harm that these infrastructures produce. So in civil defense's reorganization of the urban environment, for instance, the valued white citizenry is moved to the suburbs, but the black population already seen as futureless from Kant and Hegel onwards is left behind in the city as the disposable atomic target. The narrative form of apocalypse motivates the reshaping of the environment while the structural form of racial hierarchy shapes the environment that will be produced. Apocalypse gets the suburb built, but anti-blackness determines who will live there. It's here that the book's second major intervention comes into play, an argument about how we interpret the chronopolitics of apocalypse. Apocalypse is frightening because it threatens the future. But what if you've always been positioned by the dominant culture as inherently futureless? Does futurelessness look different if your own access to the future has long been sacrificed to ensure the continuity of the social order? If the future doesn't have you in it, black, queer, native, crip, then how much do you really want it anyway? I found myself dubious about the assumptions about apocalypse that I was encountering in lots of contemporary environmental and social theory, where thinkers from Donna Haraway to Rebecca Solnit to Timothy Morton to Kath Weston were dismissing it as a form that could only be politically quietist, a synonym for easy despair or a self-fulfilling prophecy. Across the spectrum of the environmental humanities and in other fields as well, Apocalypse is considered to be a death trap for thought or activism that seeks to make the world a better place. However, as with the bomb in nuclear criticism, apocalypse in these accounts takes on a weirdly metaphorical cast. They conceptualize apocalypse as a bad narrative form that we might misguidedly place events within, rather than a literal description of how some people live in circumstances where their futures have been and still are, absolutely foreclosed. It was strikingly different to look at how mostly white scholars in the environmental humanities were describing apocalypse as something between a potential future and a dangerous metaphor versus how black and indigenous thinkers like Sadia Hartman and Kyle Powers White were theorizing apocalypse as an ongoing event in the present for those whose futures had always been sacrificed to ensure white futurity. In the words of Public Enemy on Welcome to the Terradome, Armageddon been in effect. So building on these theorizations of apocalypse as something that's been happening, and on my feeling that if subaltern artists are writing apocalypse narratives, it must be because it does something useful for them. The question that the book addresses is fundamentally about the political potential of futurelessness and of apocalypse as a narrative form. What does apocalypse as a form for shaping our lived experience do for people whose futures are already foreclosed by nuclear infrastructures, infrastructures that are themselves manifestations of much older systems of power that distribute futurity inequitably. I found answers to this question in the writings of Tony Cade Bambara, James Baldwin, Samuel R. Delaney, Tony Kushner, Leslie Marmon Silko, and Ruth Zeki, writers who consider nuclear infrastructures within these longer settler capitalist histories. In these works, I found an apocalypticism that wasn't always immediately recognizable as such. None of them represent traditional nuclear apocalypse scenarios, but that was defined rather by a present that was shaped by nuclear infrastructures and oriented towards a radical futurelessness. Each of these texts deploys a formal afuturity that transfigures the present by disrupting the colonization of the future that we see in the state's own apocalypse narratives. And I can talk more about the narratological aspects of that transfiguration in the Q&A if people are interested. Basically, when the state is rebuilding the world to sacrifice subaltern lives in the interests of white futures, the negation of that white supremacist future in the form of apocalypse becomes the exact opposite of easy despair or political quietism. It becomes a radical refusal to be sacrificed in the name of the future and a way of opening up other possibilities in the present. 
What Apocalypse from Below in the Nuclear Age accomplishes, I argue, through my reading of these texts, is a reorientation of politics away from the imagined future that orients so much of political struggle, that suggests that we should be working towards what is realistic or possible to achieve in an imaginable future, that we should be motivated by hope that only futures that we can already imagine are worth fighting for. The futureless present offers a different orientation. In the futureless present, politics might be oriented towards impossible futures, futures that we can't yet imagine, or futures that seem literally impossible from where we are right now. Without a future, we cannot be motivated by hope, but we might be left instead with something like ethics. We fight not because we believe that we will be successful, because it is the right thing to do. When we turn our focus away from organizing towards what seems possible to achieve in the future, other orientations become possible. An ethical orientation, for instance, in which we fight for abolition, not because it seems plausible, but because white supremacist police brutality is profoundly wrong. My hope for this book, with its reorientation towards the environments and infrastructures of an ongoing nuclear apocalypse and its argument for apocalypse itself as a potentially invigorating source for radical politics is that it can expand, if only slightly, both our capacity to understand the devastations of the world as it is and our ability to imagine and work towards a world that would be constituted differently. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. Um, I did like the... No, your your concept of the nuclear mundane, uh, which did ring some bells for me a couple of years ago. I had a pleasure of supervising a PhD project uh, by Heather Benesved, who wrote a history of the bomb shelter in Sweden, which was driven by, in a way, this kind of apocalyptic mindset, um, initially not just about nuclear bombs, but about bombs in general and how that in a way, reshaped the whole fabric of, of Sweden, both socially and infrastructurally. There are mm. men among the countries with the highest number of bomb shelters per capita. So, and, and I guess that brings me to, to a question then about the situatedness of uh, your analysis then. I mean, how, I don't know all these uh, uh, authors you're working with then and the situation you're describing, but how American is it? Because uh, some of this I get uh, uh, quite American uh, feeling from. Uh, would this translate to other places? Have you looked at other places? Do you discuss that in the book? Uh, and I mean, I think you'll find some of the same elements, but how much variation is there in that, that story? Yeah, so it is an Americanist project, um, which I set out to do, at least in part, because such a huge part of it was trying to work against um, what Lisa Yonayama calls um, nuclear universalism. Uh, partly because it just seems kind of lazy to assume that nuclear apocalypse is going to be kind of totalizing um, in that way, but also because that universalization has been such a profound um, part of justifying the existence and constant growth of the nuclear complex in the first place, that basically if you assume that, um, oh no, apocalypse is coming for us all, then any action becomes justifiable uh, kind of biopolitically, right? So the idea of a national sacrifice zone um, becomes completely thinkable because you're like, well, versus the whole country or the whole world being destroyed, why would we not just dump all the nuclear waste on this reservation? Uh, so it was important to me to get as specific as possible and as situated as possible, not only in the in narrowing the book down to specific um, nations, but also then within that kind of looking at specific um, infrastructures, um, specific kinds of environments, and really trying to get into, you know, a de-universalized understanding of both apocalypse and nuclearization, because um, I think they do work differently um, in other places. Um, in my new project, which I've just 
started, I'm going more global. Um, so this is a question that I'm really reckoning with right now. Um, partly this is based on Rob Nixon's um, point in slow violence, which comes kind of late in the intro and gets moved over quite quickly, but where he's like, I can't believe Americanists just write about America all the time and never ever talk about the impact of its foreign policy as something that should be included within American studies. Um, so in the new project, which is called Nuclear Decolonizations, um, it's trying to think about the American nuclear complex as a global entity um, and look at not only how that has kind of exported certain aspects of the American nuclearism that I'm looking at in the first book into other spaces, um, but also trying to think about those spaces as kind of contact zones, right, where the American nuclear, nuclear complex itself then gets kind of reshaped by its experiences abroad. Um, so it's early days in that project. Um, but I do think by the yeah by the end of both books, I want to have a kind of situated understanding not only of how it works in the US, but also being able to think about the the global nuclear complex as something that is equally kind of situated, multi-directional, non-universal, um, and kind of mutually constituting, if that makes sense. Well, it's interesting to think about then this new project in looking at these colonial implications, right, of, of the nuclear complex and how that functions, because it sounds to me like a lot of what you're doing, even in the US case, is looking at the colonial implications, but it's a, it's an internal colonization, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, it's still saying that some particular areas and particular people um, or particular classes or statuses or you know types of people are are sacrificable, <laughs> right? Um, that it's okay if they don't you know live that the, the mm -hmm. rest of us will, um, which which is also a colonization process, um, just internal. So so I was wondering then in in if you could say a bit more about those specific sites of internal colonization that are dealt with by your authors. Um, you mentioned mm -hmm. the, the um, reservation and nuclear waste. So I'm thinking there must be a, a, a particular book that, that speaks to that. But so I, I'm just um, wondering if you could give us a little bit of insights as to where these geographies of your authors fall. Yeah, so the fourth chapter is where I really get into um, kind of literal colonization. Um, in that sense, which is a chapter on Native American literature, mostly through um, the Waste Isolation Pilot Project, which people may have heard of because they had that famous report on trying to figure out markers for long-term nuclear waste sites, which are incredible. Um, I went back to the earlier report where they hired um, people to write the scenarios for what the world was going to look like 10,000 years from now, including a sci-fi author so there's some incredible bits in there where it narrates like aliens coming down and looking at the nuclear waste site which is not what you expect to find buried like 300 pages into an incredibly dry technical report on nuclear waste storage um, and I put that kind of state imaginary of the future um, into tension with Leslie Marmon Silko's Almanac of the Dead. Um, people often talk about her first book Ceremony as a nuclear text, um, Almanac much less often, but it has this super interesting frame narrative where um, a snake, like a, a rock that looks like a snake appears in a uranium mine that was dug up in the 40s and 50s by the US on Laguna Pueblo land. Um, so it's basically like snake pops up 700 pages of narrative across 500 years of colonization in the US. And then in the last three pages of the novel, we go back to the snake and we understand what it means um, in a kind of decolonial way. Um, so it, yeah, it's been really interesting to think about nuclear colonization on that very kind of literal level and um, how dependent the state is on those kind of quantum geographies of colonization, right? You need to be able to control the land 
enough that you're allowed to dump nuclear waste in it, but it's actually helpful for the state if it's not full internal colonization, because then you get to kind of disavow the waste, right? Like native nations both are and are not part of the US. That's kind of part of their very peculiar um, political geography, but it is actually super helpful to be able to be like, no, that waste is gone from us. It's on somebody else's land, which is also kind of our land, but not really. Um, and then the other chapter, well, I guess there are two other points where that kind of literal colonization comes up. James Baldwin in his novel, Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, um, and Samuel Delaney in Dahlgren are both very, very interested in thinking about Black life as a kind of internally colonized um, life and what the kind of narrative and spatial implications are of that kind of um, lived disposability uh, and their sense of being a kind of sacrifice population. Um, and they do some really interesting kind of rethinkings of the city um, and urban space as something that is kind of continually threatened, but also then using that as a starting point rather than an ending point, right? Because Black life in the US has been so fixed into this narrative of somewhere between decline and futurelessness and that nothing good can come out of it. And that these city spaces are also fixed into kind of permanent decline. Um, but what I found that both of them were doing was kind of taking up the futurelessness of the city as an atomic target and being like, all right, well now we're no longer written into that kind of horribly overdetermined <laughs> racial narrative form that we've been in this whole time. It builds a kind of um, fugitivity to use Moton's term into the text um, to be able to be like, actually, we could just sever that overdetermined, very linear temporality and start moving in this different way that might be able to go kind of above, around, beside um, the structures of internal colonization. And then the third version of nuclear colonialism, which is where the second project kind of jumps off from, is in the coda where I talk a bit about atoms for peace um, and the way that America influenced Japan's nuclear development. Uh, and trying to think about that as a kind of a form of perhaps a new form of colonization where you kind of permanently occupy someone's land with radiation, um, which is what I'm trying to work on right now in the Marshall Islands for the new book, right? Like what does, what does radiation allow uh, in terms of colonization? Because it's still there when you leap and it's always going to there um, and I don't think we have a language yet for talking about a permanent occupation of space i.e settler colonialism uh, when there are no settlers the settlers are gone but the radiation is still there all those land relations are still severed at the very least determined for hundreds of thousands of years uh, so yeah like the big question for the new project is really what kind of colonialism is nuclear colonialism in these spaces um, and what kinds of new language do we need to come up with even to describe colonialism itself um, based on this new technology that's absolutely fascinating uh, to think about uh, we might have some more discussion about that but first so Inna had a question I'm going to unmute you Thank you, Jess. Thank you, organizers, for inviting for inviting Jess. It was I was uh, uh, waiting for uh, for this uh, seminar. Uh, just my question is the following one: while having or just while having this literary perspective on um, on the nuclear complex, uh, Jess, you are you are focused on uh, the military nuclear military industrial complex in general. And my question is is the following: Did you try to separate nuclear uh, energy discourse and uh, atomic bomb atomic war discourse in your research? 
or is it possible to do or, or just to separate uh, these discourses in your in your novels? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've tried my best not to, um, because scientifically and technologically they're so intertwined. Um, and also because that separation has been like a fundamental ideological lie essentially presented um, from Atoms for Peace onwards. Like the whole point of Atoms for Peace was to be able to say, well, yes, we have this giant apocalyptic stockpile of nuclear weapons that could wipe out the entire planet. But don't worry, we're also going to develop this new separate thing, nuclear power, that not only has nothing to do with nuclear weapons, but will somehow like redeem us for having nuclear weapons. Um, so I think of that kind of separation of nuclear energy um, and nuclear weapons at the discursive level as something that has been both created and very weaponized by um, the state and I think globally as well. Um, basically to facilitate the continued production of nuclear technology on both sides. Um, and one thing that was kind of interesting about the authors that I'm looking at is that while kind of mainstream slash mostly white um, nuclear literature is often kind of leaning into that distinction, like, yes, nuclear weapons bad, but nuclear energy still may be going to save us. Now it's climate change that it's going to redeem us from, um, but still possible to think about as kind of a good thing. Um, the subaltern writers that I'm looking at, who are looking at the kind of everyday harms and injuries of this technology, don't make that distinction um, or make it much less. You know, like if you're living in a uranium mine, it really doesn't matter where that uranium is going <laughs> in the end, right? Like, is it going to a power plant or a weapons facility, it doesn't make that much difference. Um, and there's so much kind of overlap in the disposability in both ways, right? Like the nuclear power plants are also situated next to kind of poor indigenous black communities who are the same people who are vulnerable to nuclear bombings, other kinds of nuclear accidents, Right, like if you're looking at it from the perspective of vulnerability, I think it actually really helps um, undo that kind of false distinction. So to return to the the question of these, um, I mean, their land relations, right, in in places that have been, you know, exposed to nuclear uh, waste, nuclear bombs, and so on. Um, and you mentioned this concept of, of sacrifice zones also, uh, which is also one that uh, I mean, evokes some, uh, uh, I guess, strands of analysis here. So I think that, you know, your, your question, you know, how do we talk about what happens when the settlers leave, but, the, you know, the colonialism remains, uh, is one of, of becoming a sacrifice zone in many ways. Uh, and when you're designated a sacrifice zone, an area, it also, I wouldn't say there's no future, but it certainly puts down some, um, you know, trajectories. Uh, there's some momentum. It's like, well, this place is already messed up, so we can use it for other kinds mm -hmm. of damaging energy, energy production. So, oh yeah, here we can put all our wind power plants here because, well, mm -hmm. people aren't here anyway, at least not the people who count in these discussions and so on. Uh, do you see any of, of those discussions, you know, of also the energy transitions, I think, to come back to the energy production question uh, and how then not only in some stories, this nuclear become, you know, still has the potential to become, you know, green to save us all, but it also lays down these are the areas we can use for other kinds of energy production. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's especially true um, in indigenous land, which is 
partly political, partly geographical. Um, like no one has really figured out how to make the city an energy generating form. Um, so that's kind of left to disintegrate in a kind of negative infrastructure way, whereas both the, um, the American Southwest and some other kind of international indigenous spaces are still seen as potentially um, so sources of resource extraction, right? Like first it was the uranium, now it's the wind or the solar power. But I think putting down trajectories is a really good and interesting way of thinking about it. Um, and something I really see a lot in the Marshall Islands, which has a kind of interestingly different um, set of associations with it. Um, like one thing I'm trying to figure out right now is would it, uh, I guess I'm trying to argue that it would have been different if all nuclear testing had been done in the Southwest, um, which is a desert space, very associated with kind of death and scarcity in the Western mind um, versus in the Pacific, which has always been this figure of kind of endless abundance, right, this tropical ecosystem. And one of the things that I'm finding in the archives of um, the, especially the biological scientists who go out there is that they're obsessed with this idea of like unkillable abundance. Um, so it really, it feeds a different kind of ideological strand and ideological need that is very much more about, you know what, we can test as many nuclear bombs here as we like and the environment will just magically regenerate and we will still be able to extract tuna, et cetera. But thinking about it in terms of trajectories kind of undoes some of that distinction because as we just saw this week in the climate change, negotiations, all of those islands are still seen as completely disposable, right? Like the idea that people's entire nations are going to be underwater and unlivable certainly seems shaped by the fact that they have already been made <laughs> sacrifice zones by this earlier testing, right? Like no one is thinking about them as places that need to be valued or protected. So I, yeah, I like that framing. Um, and that's a interesting um, transition there and in, in you started talking about the tropical islands and their lushness and their you know biology and one of the things that I was thinking about here is how the nuclear mundane um, enters into uh, the kind of uh, common discourse um, in the Simpsons, the fact that in the Simpsons, you know, you work in a nuclear power plant and it's, it's integrated into kind of your, your daily life. And there's the three eyed fish. And so I, in my mind, I was getting my, you know, my picture of the three eyed fish. And so I was wondering if your authors deal not only with the human populations that are affected, but with other species that are affected as well by these nuclear practices um, you know that continue to be there um, whether it's an ongoing plant or a, an action that happened in the past mm -hmm. yeah i mean this i think comes up mostly in the indigenous literatures that i am looking at just because that's a kind of ontology and epistemology that separates human and animal much less. Um, but writers like Baldwin and um, June Jordan gets into this a lot with some of her poetry as well, are kind of good and interesting at thinking about um, the environmental damage and especially the kind of animal damage that's done under nuclearization and connecting that to kind of broader patterns of settler ecocide, essentially. Um, there's a kind of unexpected amount of buffalo uh, and jackrabbits in some of these works that I do think draw that um, long-term historical continuity between, yep, we genocided entire animal populations in order to settle this nation, um, paralleling that 
with indigenous genocide and the experience of slavery as a kind of um, expression of biopower, and then thinking about nuclearization in both of its key forms, um, weapons and energy as a kind of continuation of that biopolitical um, slash psychological urge to destroy and dominate. Um, I, I am kind of obsessed with The Simpsons ever since I saw um, Anne Washburn's play, which if you haven't seen is so brilliant. It's called um, Mr. Burns, a post-electric um, post play um, and does amazing things with The Simpsons and the idea of nuclear apocalypse. But what I think about when I try and think about like why is nuclear power so central to The Simpsons, um, one thing I think about is that, you know, now when millennials and younger watch The Simpsons, they're like, I don't know what anyone's complaining about because that family has three kids and only one working parent and they live in a nice house and they have a solid middle-class lifestyle. Um, but interestingly, nuclearization has always promised that for white families, like at the Hanford works, Cape Brown's work gets into this, right? That like what it was fully federally subsidized um, to the extent that a blue collar white worker could live a white collar life by working at the plant. Um, so yeah, I'd be interested to think about the Simpsons as kind of expressing um, unconsciously, but largely this sense to which like white middle-class life um, in America from the eighties onwards um, is still being seen as kind of subsidized by nuclearization um, in some way or kind of subtended by it. And the, you know, Blinky the three-eyed fish is kind of just the cost of doing business. Yeah, I think probably half of what I've ever learned about American history and society I've learned from The Simpsons. So it's I mean, definitely <laughs> an important show. And I mean, but thinking about your your example then of uh, an author who's using the yeah, attempted extinction of the buffalo, right? Uh, you know, the American bison. I mean, that it is that intended ecocide as part of a genocidal plan, right? So it wasn't like, oh, we just want to kill them because, you know, those animals are there. It was, oh, let's kill them because that's one way of getting rid of the indigenous people. Um, mm -hmm. so, so there was an intentionality, you know, historically in in that so it's it's really interesting to see them the authors potentially thinking through um those those relations and it's quite interesting that you say that it's the um indigenous authors because you're right the the land ethics and and by land there i mean in the most general sense of the the word the, the relational mm -hmm. ethics um do stress as you're pointing out, the differences are much less between humans and, and non-humans um, than they are in other um, epistemologies mm -hmm. um, coming from coming from the West. So um, I think Gabriella had a question, right? Well, unmute you, Gabriella. Hi. So thanks so much, Jess. This is really, really interesting. And I have to say, I worked at George Mason for a while. So there are a couple of George Mason people on the call. Um, uh, so if you want, there, I put something in the chat. But my question is, is I'm really interested in, it sounds like you're using both historical texts and fictional texts to talk about your work. And so I'm kind of interested in how much you rely on the historical and how much you rely on it's not exactly fiction but 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 non-historical documents and authors to sort of think about the ideas that you're trying to communicate and one of the reasons i bring this up is my my uncle was one of the first generations of nuclear engineers in the united states in fact two of my uncles worked for westinghouse both on mm -hmm. nuclear and so my uncle 
helped develop the first generation of nuclear subs who subsequently died from a rare form of leukemia that is not in our family. And so I'm just kind of wondering about how you're trying to um, sort of negotiate the different stories and how you're then trying to place emphasis between them. Of course, you talked about Kate Brown, but then there's also Gabrielle Hex, The Radiance of France book on, which is before Adams for Peace and sort of how nuclear France builds an idea of national identity post-World War II. So I'm just kind of wondering how you're wrestling with those. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, this was not a methodology that I had when I started the project. Um, it was definitely something that kind of that emerged from doing the research. Um, and something that I think Derrida's idea of the fact that it's detextual really has right is that it turns out that fiction and storytelling and genre is just baked into the DNA of the nuclear complex in a way that I'm not I'm not an expert, so I don't know that it's not present in other kind of techno-scientific fields um, to the same extent, but like everyone is just telling stories all the time and then turning them into science. Um, so at the waste isolation pilot plant, they had to prove that the odds of um, human intrusion into the waste site were less than one in 10,000 for the next 10,000 years. How do you do this? There is no actual data. How are you going to make your math? Um, so they hire these teams of scenario writers to write scenarios about the future of the site. And then they assign them numbers, like probability numbers. And then they do math with those numbers. And then that becomes law. Like that gets written into both the kind of techno-scientific ways of understanding um, how this is going to go uh, and all of the kind of probability modeling that they do from that point out and it's written into congressional law which is was so wild to me to find out because you know as a non-scientist you just kind of assume that <laughs> when people are using data it's based on actual things and not literally short stories um, so I kind of had to develop this methodology that was not only looking at how fiction and genre and like ways of shaping expectations are being used in literary texts, but also how those things are appearing in the kind of historical archive and the historical records. Because one of the things that nuclearization did was like spawn this giant new efflorescence of imagination. Um, and that was very much not just a literary imagination, but anyone who was involved with it in any way, scientific, political, journalistic, everyone had to imagine it in part because the whole thing is top secret. It was the first scientific field ever to be born in secrecy. Um, everything to do with it is automatically classified. Um, so it creates this enormous kind of space for imaginative production to fill that gap. Um, and that is very much not just a literary issue um everyone is doing it like cities in the 50s were doing basically like live action role plays like kids do in the park these days uh, <laughs> where for three days they would get together and like act out um, a nuclear attack scenario um, so i think you know it's nice as a literary scholar to be able to come in and be like oh my skills of narrative analysis are actually kind of appropriate <laughs> Uh, for analyzing how people are thinking and acting in this case, because they all are just thinking like, oh, what's the last apocalypse story I read? Let me apply it to my thinking about how we're going to keep the phone lines up if we get atomic bombed. Um, so that's been kind of interesting and productive, I think, to be able to say, all right, historical documents are not the same as literary documents, but in this case, they are all drawing on the same kind of well of tropes and narratives and genres and being able to think about them in the same way. And then especially how the literary writers are kind of responding to those larger cultural 
narratives. It creates a space for thinking about literature as something that's not just reflecting um, society, but is actually trying to rewrite the stories in which society is actively playing itself out, not just accidentally playing itself out. So we have a couple of questions here now. So Peter, I'm going to unmute you. Hi, uh, thanks so much for such a fascinating talk. Um, so I just wanted to ask a question about the way in which your work is doing this kind of reconfiguration of apocalypse into a space of potential, right? The way in which you talk about apocalypse reveals the, the relations that are continuing in the present. And I'm really interested in the ways in which uh, this might create some tension with representations of apocalypse in contemporary ecological discourses in which uh, the world is there to be saved um, or you know the world in a kind of universal register exists in order to be protected um, mm. so I'm just interested in if you found any examples in your literary texts in which apocalypse functions kind of as a as an ambivalent thing, or even as a good thing, um, as something which, uh, at least in the space of the narratives that you're dealing with, um, can never be kind of embraced or accepted, and and what you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm really. That's a great question, um, and I I do try and be cautious about that sense of apocalypse as a <laughs> as a good thing. Um, because it so easily leans into that um, kind of what I think of as a very kind of white settler imaginary where it's like, it's okay, the old world is gonna pass away and then we will have a new heaven and a new earth where we get to build the world that we want and it's gonna be awesome. Um, so my first chapter in the book is about Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged and the development of that kind of survivalist narrative um, as a way of reestablishing a certain kind of white sovereignty that's threatened by nuclearization. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, you see it all the time in these kind of mainstream apocalypse narratives, right, where it's like, actually, this is going to turn out to be great. Um, I think the thing that I find uh, most kind of useful in the text that I'm looking at is a, a kind of forced humility against that sense of either we will be in total control after everything goes to hell and we're able to rebuild the world in the way that we want, or even that kind of mainstream environmental thing, which as you say, is like the world is there to be saved. Um, and inhabiting apocalypse more kind of fully, and I would say realistically, um, that something is ending and it's not something that we have control over. Um, is a kind of useful corrective to that very kind of, you know, colonial way of thinking about the planet, right? Which is, it's still something there to be dominated. We're just going to do it better this time. Don't worry. Um, certainly makes me worry. <laughs> um, and I think all of the writers that I'm looking at, Ayn Rand aside, um, are, in, are invested in that sense of, um, Sometimes we just have to be a smaller part of something that is unfolding that we can't determine. Um, the future might not be there for us. So how are we going to behave differently in the present um, in a way that builds a present that we want that we want to be better or want to be more kind of humane um, versus investing all of our hope for change in the future which of course is constantly receding. I think also it's fascinating to, to think about this, this idea of after the apocalypse, you can start again with a clean slate, but what you're also seeing is like, there's no such thing because these relations just continue into eternity basically. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah, I was really interested in that because I think that kind of, you know, the Christopher Columbus style of apocalypse is clean slate, we are redeemed, yep. none of our past sins matter and now we get to build this new thing um versus the kind of futurelessness that i was seeing in these texts which are, are all like 
very invested in historical consciousness. Mm. Um, so it's it's trying to find a way of living that's not over-determined or completely determined by these future these histories of damage, but that also is not interested in just kind of getting rid of them. Um, that wants to figure out ways that we can continue to kind of value and understand and treasure um, history in the past without it being like, and because this happened, you will be oppressed forever. All right. So we have then the last question we have time for today will be from Marcus. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm happy that I came across this fantastic talk uh, via Twitter. Um, and uh, I really like your notion of uh, nuclear mundane. And as, as far as I understood, you um, talk a lot of about wasted lands, like nuclear waste in um, Native American regions and um, yeah, to put focus on, on the subaltern uh, spaces of, of this nuclear mundane. And I asked myself whether you also put emphasis on the, let's say, um, uh, the nuclear mundane, not from below, but from above, uh, because um, there are these entire uh, nuclear bunkers which uh, emerged in the 70s, 80s. And I think they are still um, in the entire narrative uh, present when we talk about climate change, people uh, talk about climate change bunkers, for instance. So um, there might be a sort of Foucauldian bumerang um, of colonialism, which strikes back and hits now not the colonized, but the colonizers as well, because now they dream of um, sitting in the bunkers to survive climate change, which might be an interesting thing. And maybe you uh, thought about that or you are going to work on that in your second book. Thank you. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I like thinking about the, um, the bunker as a kind of literal infrastructural continuity between nuclearization and climate change, right? Like, um, and I wonder if that's different from a Swedish perspective and a US one or a kind of Scandinavian perspective and a US one, because the US never built fallout shelters really like they have them for politicians and sometimes suburban houses have them because one suburban dad was like i think i should definitely spend my year's salary on building this bunker um so it here at least it has always been the colonizers in the bunkers um but it has been kind of wild seeing so many of them get repurposed now like you can buy essentially timeshares in some of these big um nuclear bunkers that have been kind of refitted um, for the Cold War or post-Cold War climate change age. My favorite thing is they, they all depend on hiring um, mercenaries to defend the perimeter in the post-climate change collapse as if the men with guns on the outside are not gonna then want to be inside, <laughs> which I think speaks to that sense of um, whatever the opposite of humility is in this setting, right? Like we have built something that is potentially going to destroy most things, but we are definitely gonna survive it in our bunkers. That's gonna be fine. Um, but one yeah, thing that- yeah, Definitely some hubris there, the, <laughs> the hubris of, of believing that, um, yeah, that, that it's not going to bite me. It's not gonna mm -hmm. come back to me. It's gonna come and back the denial to those other yeah, the denial of interrelatedness in general, I think, right? Like the idea that you could live in an underground box um, separate from the rest of the ecosystem or the planet and that that would be survivable and fun, uh, like survivable in a way that you would want to survive is just, it's this perfect encapsulation. Um, and I think, at, so we see it going down and we also see it going up in the, Elon Musk, I'm going to settle Mars thing, right? It's this idea that you can build yourself a capsule reality that will insulate you from apocalypse um, and empower you in the apocalypse so that it's kind of better than the real world and you therefore don't have to worry about it happening. Um, 
so when we look at it like that, I think you can really see how it expands that kind of colonial sense, right? Like I can, I can still be the dominator. I can dominate new spaces. I can go down and I can go up and I can colonize the future. I can imagine myself. And you know, if you're Elon Musk, probably build yourself um, into the future just for you, rather than trying to think about how, okay, how are we gonna keep this planet habitable? for everyone and as many creatures as we can. Thank you so much, um, Jessica, for this. I mean, a great articulation, as Micah put it in the chat, an articulation of colonialism and apocalypse and how those two you know, function um, together in, in these narratives, both in your case, looking specifically at this nuclear presence, um, but also our climate change presence Mm -hmm. and and the apocalypse presence um that we are living in so we just want to thank you very much um for coming and talking about infrastructures of apocalypse american literature and the nuclear complex which is with university of minnesota press in 2020. thank you so much for having me